0: Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. All right, so this morning I am in week two of a sermon series I've entitled Strength and Weakness, going through the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with this book, it is a letter written by an early church leader named Paul to a church that he had started in Corinth in 50 A.D. Corinth is part of Greece back in the day. It was part of the Roman Empire. And Corinth was a very wealthy city, and it also experienced a lot of issues in the church, which is why we have two very long letters from Paul to this church in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And there's even evidence, as you read through those letters, of at least two other letters that he wrote to this church that we don't have in existence anymore. And so there were a lot of issues going on that he had to address Um, I'm going to try to give you a timeline, it it might be hard to hold it all, but I'm going to try to give you a timeline of Paul's relationship with this church, because you're going to find as we read through the reading today that it's a very strained relationship. So Paul starts the church around 50 A.D., and after he leaves it in the hands of local elders, he moves on to start another church, but he gets wind that there's all kinds of issues going on, which prompts him to write 1 Corinthians. That's a letter we looked at last year in the beginning of 2020. And so he writes 1 Corinthians. There's a number of, Christ- of, of Christians and people in Corinth who have rejected Paul's authority, rejected his influence, and he has to write to kind of deal with a lot of the issues that have arisen. And then he follows up on that by making what he calls in today's letter a painful visit to them. He has to confront them about a number of things, and it's a very painful visit. And he makes plans to return, and make a return visit, but circumstances change, and he's not able to come and visit. And so instead he sends a letter to them uh, a letter with a man named Titus, and this is not 2 Corinthians, this is another letter he sends with Titus, asking them to address issues that have arisen, particularly, there seems to be an individual who is stirring up all kinds of opposition and trouble. And he's, he writes asking the leaders of the church to kind of deal with this man and discipline him, uh, to confront him with his sin, if necessary, to, to remove him from the church because of the trouble that he's causing. So this, this letter, written in tears that he sends them, he talks about this, we're going to find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, about this letter. And then Paul is waiting for Titus's return. He says that he was so troubled waiting for the return that he couldn't even, even though it says he was in Macedonia with an open door to ministry, he couldn't, couldn't engage in ministry because he was so concerned about what might happen in the Corinthian church. And so he writes this letter in response. He writes 2 Corinthians to kind of continue to talk about what issues are going on and try to mend the strained relationship he has. Because some of the Corinthian church have responded and are really taking care of the issues and it's, it's really bringing him joy, but others are still stirring up trouble. So in addition to that, as I mentioned last week, there's also some outside teachers that have come in that he sarcastically dubs the super apostles, who are kind of these health and wealth teachers, talking about how Paul is just poor and suffering. You, you shouldn't listen to him, because obviously he's not blessed by God with all the suffering he's going through you should follow us. You know, we preach a message of health and wealth and all of these beautiful things, and we should follow us instead. And so there's all kinds of stuff that Paul needs to address in this letter. The bottom line, if you couldn't follow all that, is that the relationship between Paul and this church that he loves so very much is strained. The unity that he longs for is just not happening, and it causes him a lot of heartache as someone who loves these people very much. And when it comes to unity, I, I think there's two truths we can probably agree on. One, first of all, is that God really desires and has a high value on unity. Unity really matters to God, that his children would be united, that they would love each other. Secondly, I think we can all agree, is that we're doing a terrible job of that as humans, right? We're doing a terrible job when it comes to humanity, not only in the world, but even in the church as well. You know, whatever your opinion is of what happened this past week at the Capitol. I think it's inarguable that there's significant division in our country, right? There's just significant division in our country. And there seems, what seems to be worse, is there seems to be a, a really, a decrease in civility and decency and respect in trying to figure out how you work through differences. Our discourse is dominated by social media that amplifies every disagreement, every argument, causes all kinds of just disagreements and division. And our world is dominated by a technology that decreases face-to-face interaction, right? You know, when you, when you talk to someone face-to-face, you usually can work through things or talk through things, but when you're hiding behind screens, again, division happens more and more. And so, unfortunately, it feels like the United States of America feels more like the divided states of America these days. But sadly, even in the church, unity is hard to come by. I did a quick Google search and puts the, it puts the number of denominations, Christian denominations in the United States, somewhere between 200 and 1,200, depending on what source you look at. It seems like there's a lot of things to divide over, even as Christians in the church. There's a lot of things that are hard to find unity around. But unity matters to God regardless. Think of what John... Wrote Jesus' high priestly prayer in John seventeen, twenty twenty-three. Jesus said, My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Listen to what Jesus is saying there. He's saying the unity of the church will be a witness to the world that I'm divine, that God the Father has sent me. As they look at the unity, the love, the grace, the peacemaking in the church, they will know that God is real, that Jesus has been sent by God. And so the way we have messed that up is is the opposite of a good witness, right? It's a terrible witness to the world about the reality of God. You know, if you could sum up the gospel, the Christian message in one word. One word that you might use is the word reconciliation. Second Corinthians five seventeen to 20, Paul writes, "'Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation.'" We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul sums up the gospel message, the Christian message in this word, reconciliation. That you have been made right with God. You, you who were once at odds with God have been brought near into a right relationship. And he's given you the ministry of reconciliation to be a peacemaker. To go and bring people back to a right relationship with God. So listen to me this morning. I'm going to use this 2 Corinthians passage to talk about Paul's heart as a peacemaker. His heart as a peacemaker to bring unity and reconciliation in this church that he loves so much. Because I believe that God has called you, as a Christian, our church, and the church to be an army of peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. listen, In the world that we live in that is so divided and fractured, the church has an opportunity to shine like the stars, to be salt and light by being a place of peacemaking and unity. And as I said, I don't think we're necessarily doing a great job of that. But take this to heart this morning, the call that God has on you individually and on us to be a peacemaking people to be a people that understand peace, love, grace, and unity. So we're going to look at what Paul had to say in this passage, how he tried to work through his strained relationship with the Corinthian church, and what we can learn from this passage about peacemaking. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 13. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, and I went on to Macedonia. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Help us to apply this to our lives today, that we might be peacemakers, sons of God and daughters of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, that might have been a little hard to follow, so I'm going to try to unpack what he's saying there. In chapter 2, verse 11, he references Satan, the adversary. He says, we're not unaware of his schemes and how he's trying to divide and destroy the church and the people that God loves. And what I want to do as I look at this passage is talk about three schemes of Satan. Th- three things that I see that, that the enemy of the church, the enemy of God tries to do to destroy and divide God's people. And if you don't want to talk about Satan, you can just say three things we do to ourselves because we do plenty of it to ourselves without his help. Three ways that Satan tries to destroy and divide the church. And now the focus is on the church and Christians, but there's going to be a lot of principles in here I'm sure that you can apply to your relationships with people who are not a part of the church. So the first scheme... Satan uses to divide the church is miscommunication, faulty assumptions, suspicion of motives. Miscommunication, faulty assumptions, suspicion of motives. Paul begins with these words. He says, "'This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read and understand.' And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. If you didn't notice, he's defending himself a lot. It's, it must be hard for him to figure out, how do I defend myself, you know, against all these accusations, against all the things that people are saying that are trying to divide and destroy us and the unity that we have, that I'm the one who started this church and, and I'm, I'm the apostle, I'm, I'm the pastor, and now there's this division that has happened. How do I defend the accusations against myself? The boasting in this context is not a self-glorification. It's boasting in what God has done in him, what God is doing in them. And he goes on to explain. He says, listen, let me explain to you why I did not come when I said I would. Because, again, they are having faulty assumptions here. They're having suspicion of motives here because of the fact that Paul did not show up when he said he would. So he, so he says this, when I planned this, did I do it lightly, making my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no, but as truly as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Remember, of course, there were no phones in those days. There was no email. There was no text messaging. He did not show when he said he would, and they started to become suspicious and assume things and hear other people saying things about Paul. And so all these assumptions and false motives that they're attributing to him are just causing all kinds of trouble for Paul. But Paul gives them a reason he did not come. He says, I made up my mind I would not make another painful visit to you. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient and everything. There was such turmoil, he said, if I, he felt like if he came, it would not go well. And so he needed to instead send them a letter with Titus and ask them to deal with the issue, deal with the individual in their midst who is causing such division. He put the responsibility on the church leaders to deal with the issue because he felt like if he came, it was just not going to go well. It was going to be a painful visit that was going to result in more division. And it sounds like the Corinthian leaders took his advice and they took care of it because now he starts to talk about forgiveness, forgiving the offender. He says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. And now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So he wrote this letter asking the leaders to deal with the troublemakers in their midst, and it seems like they did, and now he's writing them to say, okay, you've disciplined this individual, they've repented, now forgive them, so that Satan will not have a foothold to divide and destroy the church. So, the first scheme, again, that Satan uses to divide the church is miscommunication, faulty assumptions, and suspicion of motives. The less that you talk to people face-to-face the more you begin to question people's motives, make assumptions about people. And those assumptions tend to be uncharitable, don't they? They tend to be suspecting wrong motives on the, on the part of other people. And that is how Satan starts to get a foothold to divide and destroy. Consider this. In a famous experiment from the 1950s, psychologists found that when a group of boys were randomly assigned to two teams and then isolated from each other, hostility between the two groups escalated to a perilous level. Conversely, when people from an in-group spend time with those from an out-group, dislike or mistrust declines. As the social psychologists Thomas F. Pettigrew and Linda R. Tropp found in their landmark survey, based on 515 empirical studies, prejudice and distrust are greatly reduced when groups get to know each other. <clears throat> that sounds relevant. When people don't talk to each other face to face when when either in the form of social media they're just firing things into the internet or they're just staying in their separate little groups and not talking to each other that's when division and distrust and discord happens and that is one of the schemes that satan uses to divide and destroy miscommunication faulty assumptions suspicion of motives as there isn't face to face interaction this happens all the time even in the church there have been times when, you know, I might be walking by to do something and someone says, oh, he didn't say hi to me, and then all kinds of suspicions and false motives arise, right? Oh, you think he's better than me? You know? You you he doesn't have time for me? These sort of things happen so instinctively that something happens, we interpret it one way, we make all kinds of suspicion, suspicious, you know, attribute false motives to people, instead of just coming face-to-face to to someone and saying, hey, this happened, am I off base or was something going on there? And seeking clarification. Paul, in this situation, tries to clarify what happened because he knows that there's all kinds of miscommunication happening and false motives being attributed to him. And so he writes and clarifies, listen, this is why I did not come. It is not because I don't love you. I didn't come because I knew it was going to go badly if I went. And so I asked you guys to deal with the issue. And I'm so grateful that you did. And now forgive, because what you've dealt with has been, you know, what you had to deal with has been taken care of. Remember what James said, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Maybe you've heard it said that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, so that we would listen twice as much as we talk, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Can I encourage some of you who need to take that, write it down, put it on your computer, put it on your phone, put it somewhere where you're going to see it to remind you to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Be slow to type. Be slow to post. Seek to understand others before you need to be understood by them find someone else who sees the world differently than you, and instead of just yelling back at them, why not ask them? Why not call them up? Why not listen to them and say, tell me more about why you believe what you believe. Tell me more about how you see the world so that you might love them better. Not that you might argue with them better, so you might love them better. This is how Paul deals with this miscommunication, all the faulty subjects. He He clarifies with them what his motives were so that there would not be miscommunication and division. He reaffirms his love for them. That's the first of Satan's divisive schemes. Miscommunication, faulty assumptions, suspicion of motives. They use that to destroy and divide the people of God. Second is this. He uses gossips and slanderers. In 2 Corinthians 1 and 2, again, Paul is contending with a certain individual who has caused all kinds of trouble by their slander of Paul. All kinds of things that they've said about Paul, about who he is, about what's wrong with him, what he's doing to them, how he's treating them, and this person has caused such division. that Paul says, we need to deal with this. I need you to discipline this person. And this is in conjunction with all those other super apostles who are throwing more shade on him and his ministry. One of the reasons that unity is so hard to achieve is because, well, let's be honest, so many of us are insecure about who we are, insecure about our value and our worth, and one of the ways that we deal with that to convince ourselves that we're worth something is to put down other people. I don't know if anyone's ever done that before. In order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and our worth and our value, we will put down other people, gossip about other people, slander other people. Because then at least we have someone to look down upon and feel better about ourselves. And that, again, seems to be what's going on here in Corinth as they trash Paul and bring division in the church to elevate themselves. And Satan can do all kinds of damage in the church through gossip, through slander. But again, remember what James said. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, are you not keeping it? You are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, so many of us resort to this because we're not sure of our own value, and so we end up putting down other people to make ourselves feel better. But Paul makes sure they know of their value in Christ in this letter. He says, "'Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. "'He anointed us. "'He set his seal of ownership on us "'and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit "'guaranteeing what is to come.'" In other words, you belong to God. You're his. He died for you. He will never let you go. You'll be with him forever.'" your value, your worth is sealed forever. The one whose opinion matters more than anyone else in the world loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and he will not let no one take you away from him. Your value is sealed in him so you do not need to elevate yourself by putting down other people. That is how Satan tries to bring division and destruction. Again, one of the solutions here is face-to-face communication. Instead of going around talking about other people behind their back, going to someone and confronting if you need to or asking if what you've heard is true so that there would be no gossip, no slander, no foothold for Satan to divide and destroy. As Paul writes in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. His maturity comes from speaking the truth in love to one another. Being honest in love with one another. Not speaking the truth in anger, speaking the truth to tear someone down, speaking the truth without caring about another person's feelings, and not lying either, but speaking the truth in love to one another. That is how You combat Satan's divisive schemes. And the last, the third of Satan's divisive schemes in the church is this, unforgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells the church, after this person's been disciplined and they've repented, forgive them. He says, the punishment inflicted on them is sufficient. And now forgive, reaffirm your love. He says, do this so that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This may be the most important thing when it comes to unity in any relationship, whether it's husband and wife, parents and children, neighbors, friends, siblings, a church, the world. One of the most important, if not the most important, is the ability to forgive. Because it doesn't matter how close you are, how much you love one another, you are going to hurt each other. Even those who love you the most will hurt you and offend you. And if you're not able to forgive, then that relationship will eventually become divided and destroyed, right? This may be the single most important thing when it comes to unity is the ability to forgive. Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, don't keep track. It's not count to 77. It's don't even keep track. Just You keep forgiving someone when they come to you asking for forgiveness. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is a crisis of forgiveness in our culture right now. We live in a cancel culture, if you've heard that phrase, where anyone can be shunned for life if they do something that offends our cultural sensitivities. I read all the time about people who apply for good jobs and then as they apply for that job, what happens next is the digging into their background. Let's go through their whole online history. And then when something is found that someone said from 10, 20 years ago that is terrible, they are raked over the coals, they lose their job, and they are publicly ostracized and shamed for it. And it doesn't matter if they've matured since then, it doesn't matter if they've confessed it, that we live in this cancel culture that is so quick to judge, condemn, and shame people. anything that they do that is in opposition to our cultural sensitivities. And again, as frightening as that is, what an opportunity for us as a church to be a place where grace flows, where forgiveness is shown. If this is the way the world is going, more and more people being canceled for the things they say or do, that there will be no more forgiveness for you. What an opportunity it is to be a community that shows the beauty of second chances and third chances and 77th chances that shows forgiveness and grace and love. Remember again, this is how Jesus said it. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is how he says we are to be, to love even our enemies, to be people who are quick to forgive as he has forgiven us, to show grace as he has shown grace to us. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean condoning what someone has done. It doesn't mean necessarily forgetting what someone has done. It doesn't mean there's no consequences, but it does mean that we are willing to put that in the past, to not hold an offense against someone, to leave the offense in God's capable hands for judgment, to treat another person with love again, to have compassion on the offender, not because they deserve it, but because that is how God has treated you in Christ, because you didn't deserve, but he gave you forgiveness and love and grace. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's a line that I've used in my life. I don't know if you've used it in your life. When you have a hard time forgiving someone, this is one of those lines that you can use. Say, listen, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. If they knew better, they would not do this. But they are acting in a way that is offensive, that is hurtful, because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, in 2 Corinthians 2, we see Paul making every effort at peacemaking with this church that he loves so much, that he will not allow Satan to divide and destroy. And so, as a result, he needs to cut through the miscommunications and the faulty assumptions and the suspicion of his motives He tells them not to put up with gossip and slander and the things that the people were trying to divide and destroy, but to speak the truth in love. And he emphasizes forgiveness, just as in Christ God has forgiven them. Let me say again to you that God has called you to be a peacemaker. God has called you to be a peacemaker as a follower of Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, because Paul was a prisoner when he wrote this. See the emphasis there on unity? He's saying, please make every effort. Make every effort to keep unity because it is through unity, he says, that it'll be a witness to the world of the beauty of God, of the reality of Jesus Christ. Being a peacemaker is going to mean speaking face to face with people or over the phone if you can't in this culture. Being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, being quick to extend grace and forgiveness. Just as he has extended grace and forgiveness to you. So, can we consider this morning how we might put this into practice in the church and in our families and in this world? Think about the church. Jesus said this Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Isn't that amazing? God says, all right, so you're coming to worship, you're coming to bring an offering, you're coming to sing to me. If there is disagreement between you and another believer, if there is tension and issues and, and, and that kind of discord, you know what's worshipful to me, more than your songs, more than your gifts, is that you would go and be made right with that person, that you would go and find unity, be reconciled. That is worship to me, more than anything you could give here on a Sunday morning is that you would be unified. So leave your gift, go take care of that, and then come back. That's how important it is to God, that this would be a community of unity, of grace, of forgiveness. And then think about your families, those of you who who are part of a family, husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings. You are called to be a peacemaker in your home and listen very, very closely. That holding grudges, keeping score of offenses, refusing to show grace is not consistent with being a follower of Christ. And you say, yes, but you don't know my situation. No, I don't know your situation. And I'm happy to listen if you want to talk further because I know this is easier said than done. I have a family myself. I know it's easier said than done. But the reality is that all of this holding grudges, unforgiveness, refusing to show grace is not consistent with being a follower of Christ and that God has an endless supply of grace for you if you would come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. Maybe you just need to go deeper with him. Maybe you need to go deeper into understanding his grace and receive from him that you might be able to extend it to others. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I know you see this and you say, well... I don't measure up to that and none of us do this is why we need the grace of god and to understand his grace over us that we might be able to love in the same way he's loved us and then lastly we've talked about the church your family let's talk about your interaction with the world some of you just need to stop right you know what i'm talking about Sometimes we just need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to type, slow to post, slow to become angry. To put James one nineteen to 20 on our computer and say be slow to speak, be quick to listen. If you can't understand why someone thinks the way they do, why not call them up and ask them? Why not say, tell me more about what you believe, what you think and why? A conversation can be a good thing, a healing thing, a really healthy thing. Social media can be a wonderful thing, but it can also draw us into sin very easily. And it can lead to terrible, terrible division. So if you can't control yourself, then I encourage you to fast from it. Say, you know what, I'm going to take a week, I'm going to take a break and see what that does to my spirit. And if you're not sure, if you're not sure, if you're kind of like, I don't know if I'm being a peacemaker or not, then I encourage you to come before the Lord with it and ask him. Ask him for his opinion on your interaction with the world. Ask him whether in the way you're interacting, if it's a way that honors him or not. Again, we have been given a great opportunity in this world to be peacemakers, to be a community of grace, forgiveness, and unity. We're not doing a great job of it. I'm not just speaking of us, but I'm talking about the church in general. We're not doing such a great job of it. But we have an opportunity here to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, to treat each other with love and forgiveness and grace that the world might know that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship.